You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Luke, in writing this gospel, is really keen for us to understand something very clearly. He wants us to know that Jesus is the friend of tax collectors and sinners. He is the friend of those who are otherwise ostracized, downtrodden, excluded by the so-called religious people of the day. And so right before this passage that we're looking at, you've got Luke 7, verse 33 to 34. And this is a, a, a kind of accusation that's going around about Jesus. He speaks to it here in this passage where he says, John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. And then he says of himself, the son of man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And in saying that, Jesus is owning it. It's a spurious claim about him. It's a pejorative claim. It's something that people are saying kind of to take him down, right, to speak ill of him. And he's saying, yeah, that's me. That's me. Do you remember when, uh, this is a a niche reference, and I never use sporting references, A, because I don't know many, and B, because I don't know if you know them. But remember, uh, I think it was VFL days when Nicky Wimmer was being, um, was being racially abused. He was a, 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 an indigenous footballer. He was being racially abused, and, and as he was being abused by this player, he lifted up his jersey and said, yeah, I am black, right? That's what Jesus is saying. He's lifting up his shirt and saying, yes, that's me. I am eating. I am drinking. I am a friend of tax collectors, a friend of sinners. So this, this, that, little, that little passage that Luke includes joins together our two passages that we've looked at so far. The last week, befriending a tax collector in Levi. This week, befriending an unnamed woman who is a sinner, all, in all likelihood a prostitute. And this is what Tim Chester says uh, of Luke's desire for us to see this truth about Jesus. Here's what he says. Luke seems to pick stories involving tax collectors and prostitutes. They exemplify notorious sinners. It's as if he's testing us. So just test yourself here, all right? It's as if he's testing us. Have we grasped God's grace? How do we react when a promiscuous woman kisses the body of Jesus? Do we celebrate God's grace or are we scandalized? The grace of God turns out to be uncomfortable and embarrassing. And so it reveals how how much have we, as modern day, perhaps, you know, probably more kind of, if you're part of this church, maybe a little more conservative kind of Christian, how much have we gone from the original Jesus-following band of misfits to the, to the Pharisee end of the scale, those who were scandalized by the kind of people Jesus hang out, hung out with and the kind of people that Jesus forgave. Just keep that in mind as a little test as we work through this passage because this passage is uncomfortable in places and my experience of Jesus is that he never lets you get comfortable with anything. He's always poking you. He's always forcing you. Uh, to reassess some of your deeply held beliefs. Here's the first point I want to get to. First of all, Jesus welcomes sinners, right? This is verse 36 to 38. Read along with me. One of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. 
he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. I remember being in this service at an Anglican cathedral where everything was very prim, very proper, very Anglican. I was with all the, the other clergy in robes, right? The dog collar that you've never seen on me was firmly in place. I was choking. It was a sung Eucharist, so the choir was in full voice. We were trying to go along with them. Everything was very prim and proper. And then someone who I assume was a homeless guy because he was like carrying a whole bunch of stuff with him came in. I, I assume he... I don't know what kind of mental state he was in, but he was behaving like he, he, he had had too much to drink. And he just started going off at the robed people, like real, with real denunciations, real like John the Baptist kind of stuff, just like uh, accusing us of all kinds of things. Some of it probably true. And just made a big scene in the middle of this very prim and proper little ceremony that we were having. And he was quickly kind of shown the door and ushered out but it was awkward, it was uncomfortable. He, he disrupted the kind of serene environment that we had uh, established for ourselves. And that's, that's similar to what's going on here. This woman coming into this environment has completely disrupted it and what she's doing, the way she's behaving is so inappropriate and just outright embarrassing. So just to set the context for you, in Jesus' day, if you were wealthy enough to own a large home like this Pharisee would have owned, you, you, the house was set up in such a way that there were, there were semi-public areas, like a, a courtyard that would be open to the street, uh, a semi-public area in which people could come along, they could pay you tribute as a wealthy person, they could do business with you, or, or in the case of a, a meal like this called a symposium meal where, where you would have around your house notable people, teachers or philosophers or religious people, you'd have them round and you would have this discussion and, and it was kind of semi-public. It was open to people to come and, come and sit and listen and maybe even contribute. It was a little bit like a first century Q&A, you know, ABC show where you'd have these people around a table and, and you could listen in. Maybe you'd get asked a, um, whether you had a question that you might like to ask them. And so this is a the, the symposium meal of the first century. And, um, and because it was open to the street, in our story, it's the, the, the meal itself is open to people loitering in the street, specifically the kind of woman who loiters in the street to make money, a, a prostitute, right? And in our case, the, this prostitute, this unnamed woman, goes from the street into the house, and it's there that all of the trouble starts. All of the trouble starts there because, as we said last week, for the Pharisees, they had this deeply held belief. And you, and you need to just, don't just dismiss them as the bad villains of the story, even though we're prone to do that. They had a deeply held and pious belief, a, a, a deeply held conviction that a transformed Israel 
was going to transform the world. This really optimistic, lofty vision of the kingdom of God coming as the, as the people of God were transformed in holiness. And so the way they saw that playing out was through obedience. They would obey God's law and obey the hundreds of laws that they had added on to God's law. And, and through sheer obedience, they would bring about the kingdom of God. They would transform the world. They would do it in a couple of ways actively through obedience, and then also through excluding members of the people of God who weren't holy, weren't pure. Right? How do you get a, a white robe to be more white? You take the stains out of it, or you cut out the, the, the discolored parts. That's the way they viewed it. If we, if we ourselves commit to obedience, and then we get rid of the dark spots on this robe, then maybe... Maybe we can transform the world. So they're very into obedience to the law and the additional laws that they have made for themselves, and they're very into excluding anyone who isn't pure, who isn't obedient. This woman is the kind of person they want to exclude for obvious reasons, right? And it's this woman that walks right into the Pharisee's house, walks right into his own little, um, his own little pure space. That's where the trouble starts. Not only is she a notorious sinner, not only is she an impure person, not only is she a stain on Israel, her behavior here, we don't get it, right? But her behavior, once you see it in its historical context, is completely inappropriate and embarrassing. I'll give you a couple of quotes. First of all, from the New Testament scholar, Joel Green. He says, everything about this woman is wrong. She doesn't belong here. And the actions she performs are inappropriate in any setting for someone like Jesus. And then Tim Chester expands on this. He says, this woman treats Jesus with a shocking degree of intimacy. She's, she's, her, her actions are very sexualized. This woman treats Jesus with a shocking degree of intimacy. She lets down her hair to wipe tears from Jesus' feet. In that culture, letting down your hair was something you did in the bedroom. Again, Joel Green says, letting hair down in this setting would have been on a par with appearing topless in public. And so it's not just that she's impure, it's not that she's just that she's a sinner, a stain on the people of God, but her behavior is inappropriate in the extreme. But notice this, it's very stark, Jesus doesn't rebuke her. Like in, in the cathedral story, the ushers were right on that guy. Just get, just get him out. Jesus doesn't get rid of her. At these meals, you've got to think, that we're not sitting around a table like we do, but they're, as he says a couple of times, they're reclining. So they're lying down, you know, head up on, on, one, on, on one elbow like this, and so feet out behind you. And this woman has come up behind Jesus and has started to anoint his feet, wash his feet with her tears. 
This happens to Jesus and he doesn't respond by turning around and saying, get out. He doesn't rebuke her when her actions are inappropriate. He doesn't rebuke her, maybe even more profoundly, when his reputation is on the line. Remember, this is semi-public. This is with the big notable guys in Jerusalem. His reputation is on on the line in verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what. Oh, that's just sick. Who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, right? Who's being intimate with him. She's a sinner. Remember, this is all framed in the accusation that came before. The accusation, Jesus doesn't just tolerate sinners, he's the friend of sinners. And so again, in not rebuking her and not sending her away, he's owning that. That's who I am. I don't just tolerate being around these people, I am befriending them, I'm inviting them in. I think probably a fair criticism of the church is that we are fairly good at tolerating sinners, fairly good at tolerating homeless people, fairly good at tolerating prostitutes or drunkards. I don't know how good we are at befriending them. So Jesus welcomes sinners, and then the beautiful other half of the story is that sinners befriend Jesus. Sinners welcome sinners. Jesus. So let's, let's see a bit more about where this woman's coming from, all right? Verse 43 to 47. Jesus said to the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. Why is he saying this? Because he knows the Pharisee's heart. Did you pick that up? That thing the Pharisee said about Jesus not being a prophet, he said it to himself. <laughs> Jesus knows our hearts. Jesus sees the heart of this man. He says, I have something to say to you. Simon says, say it, teacher. Jesus says, a creditor had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii. That's about 20 months' wages. And the other 50, that's about two months' wages. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who forgave, he forgave more. You've judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? <laughs> yeah, he sees it. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. 
why does Jesus not rebuke this woman? It's because he sees her heart. He sees both of their hearts. He sees her heart and he judges her heart and he sees that the way she's behaving, even though it's inappropriate, the way she's behaving, perhaps it's the only way she knows how to show love to men. The way that she's behaving, though inappropriate, is an expression of deep love and gratitude. She's behaving this way because she knows how much she's been forgiven. Do you see that? Why does she do what she does? Verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. It's not the other way around. Jesus doesn't see that she does nice things for him and then forgives her. She's doing the nice things for him because she knows she's been forgiven. Same with us. Why does she do what she does? Because she knows the depth of the grace and mercy of God. Why does Simon think so little of Jesus? Because he doesn't think he needs to be forgiven. He's righteous. He's the kind of Jew that he wants all Jews to be. Right? He's memorized the first four books of the Bible, five books if he's really good at it. He's observed not just the laws that come from God, but the laws that they have accumulated for themselves. He's really good at excluding the dark stains on the robe of Israel. And so therefore he thinks self-righteously that he doesn't need to be forgiven. That's why he doesn't love Jesus. That's why he doesn't think much of Jesus. That's why he doubts that Jesus is even a prophet, let alone the Messiah. question for us, the question that comes to my mind is, when was the last time that I was overcome, that I was overwhelmed by the grace of God? When was the last time that I wept because of the grace of God? How, like, what is more indicative of my demeanor when I come into this space on Sunday morning? Do I look more like the woman or more like the Pharisee? Do I come in in tears, overwhelmed with gratitude, or do I come in self-assured and self-righteous? Do I come in and throw myself at the feet of the Savior, or do I look him in the eye and start to doubt who he really is? Is he that much better than me? I know, you know, we're not going to walk around every day in tears as we come to terms with the grace of God. It would be great if we did. We're not going to. But what is it that prevents us from engaging with the depths of God's grace in that way? What is it? Is it just that familiarity breeds contempt and we need to reconnect with that first love? Or is it that we have accumulated a sense of self-righteousness that means that we're not really overwhelmed by amazing grace. 
all right, here's the climax of the story. We're not even there yet. This is, this is the really, this is the mind-blowing bit. All right, the last couple of verses, verse 48 to 50. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That question that they asked, verse 49, that question is the reason Luke wrote this whole book. The reason Luke wrote his gospel is to answer that question, verse 49. Yeah, verse 49, where they say, Who is this man who even forgives sins? That's what he wants everyone in this room to reckon with this morning. Who is Jesus? If he's forgiving sins, he's not just another good guy. He's not just another moral teacher. He's not just a Galilean peasant. If he's forgiving sins, he's God. That's what they know more clearly than anything else. Only God can forgive sins. This is the thing that gets Jesus killed. Jesus ends up on the cross because of that. Blasphemy. Because unless you're God, to say your sins are forgiven is blasphemy. To forgive someone's sins is something only God can do. And so unless you're God, it's blasphemy to say those words. And that's what gets Jesus killed. But to those of us who know the depth of our rebellion against God, those words are the sweetest words we can ever hear. To those of us who know how much of a wretch we are. To those of us who know the darkness of our hearts. That part of us that we tuck away when we come into church on Sunday. That part of us that we wish was never there, but it is. That stain. To those of us who know the depth of our rebellion, the depth of our sin. Those words of Jesus are the sweetest we will ever hear. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want you to know that this morning. I want, you to, I want you to experience what she experienced there, right? As all of her sins were exposed to everybody, all of her history known to everybody. In the, a context and environment where the blackness of her was so stark against the purity of the environment, right? In that very place, Jesus says to her, go in peace. That's what I want you to know this morning. We will never understand the beauty of the gospel until we first understand the blackness of our hearts. You've got you to get the bad news before you get the good.
And that's so that's why Sunday by Sunday, we don't just want to get you in here and hype you up and make you feel great and send you out believing a lie about yourself. We want you to know the bad news so that you can delight in the good news. At the end of our service, when we say, go in peace to love and serve the Lord, we really mean that. You can. You can go in peace, just as this woman was told to go in peace. You can, not because you are a spectacular snowflake, but because God has forgiven you, because his grace and mercy is enormous. Because he looks at you and sees your sin, sees your stain, sees your brokenness and says, I love you. I forgive you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus is the friend of sinners like us. This saying is trustworthy and true. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. When we can say that and believe it, that's where true joy lies. Lasting peace. That's the kind of heart out of which worship like she demonstrates comes. Tears. Tears of joy. Tears of reverence. Tears of awe at the amazing grace of God. I'm going to pray now that we would experience that grace. That we would experience it even, even now as we stand and sing God's praises, that maybe for the first time it will be revealed to us just how deep and beautiful and profound that grace is. I'd also invite you during this time as we sing to come up. We're going to get you to come over this side of the stage this week, uh, and we'd love to pray with you. If, if any of you feel like the woman the woman who is still in her sin, the woman who hasn't received that forgiveness from Jesus, if you're still carrying the burden of that, the weight of that, just come, with, come, come forward. We'd love to pray with you. Some of you don't come forward because you don't want to be known as that sinner. Just put that to death, right? Everyone here is that woman. Come and pray with us. We'd love to minister to you. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Lord God, please save us from being the Pharisee, for being Simon, for being the one who's self-assured and self-righteous and doesn't love you because we don't see our need for forgiveness. Lord, I know that guy is in me. I know that he accumulates more and more space for himself in my heart, and so I just pray you put him to death. 
may we be much more like the woman, shedding tears of joy and reverence and awe as we comprehend your grace and mercy and forgiveness. Even now as we sing, we lift our voices to praise you. I pray that rather than being bored by these songs, we'd be awed by them because we understand the depth of your grace, your great love for us, demonstrated in the life and the death, the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.